0: Hello and welcome back to Out the Gate. Today's a special episode because I'm talking to a couple who've been sailing together for over 50 years. They started cruising in the 60s aboard their 33-foot Cement Ketch and continued later aboard their 35-foot Halberg Rossi. Oh, and along the way, they raised a couple kids, me and my brother. My parents, Sid and Rebecca Shaw, have cruised all over the world, from the Caribbean to the South Pacific, from Israel to Alaska, and while COVID's put a crimp in their traveling lately, they're still some of the most adventurous people I know. And in this interview, we talk about how each of them got into sailing and what kept them cruising together all these years. We talk about highlights and lowlights along the way enjoy First I just wanted to start by saying thank you for introducing me to sailing and making me aware that with a small boat and a small budget you can really explore the world and have a lot of adventures meeting interesting people and it opens up a lot of doors and gives you perspective that you wouldn't get any other way. I grew up sailing because of you guys. I'm gonna start it like I do most podcasts
1: and ask you to each introduce yourself. I'm Sidney Shaw. I came to sailing later in life. I was in the Navy, met a uh, radio astronomer from India, who was working at Caltech, who was a relative of a roommate that my brother had had in graduate school. And Because I had sailed the 16-foot dinghy on a lake in Virginia where I was living or on the Potomac River outside of Washington, I was one of the people he felt knew more about sailing than anyone else he knew, which was quite unusual and an understatement. But anyway, he had a dream of sailing around the world. When he would come to Washington for meetings, we would get together and talk about the perfect boat and what equipment to take on a trip around the world. This was Rad. What Uh, was his full name? uh, Venkatmuran Radhakrishnan. Sounds a lot like catamaran, but we sailed on a trimaran. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, his father was the only Indian to have a Nobel Prize in physics. Rad was rather brilliant. He was a professor of radio astronomy at Caltech, even though he had only a bachelor's degree. At any rate, as things evolved, he decided that the perfect boat to sail around the world would be a a, a trimaran designed by Arthur Piver, who was uh, one of the two eminent, uh, preeminent yacht trimaran designers. Ultimately, ended up having a 35-foot trimaran built by Cox Marine in England for about $10,000. This was 1963, probably that he placed the order. He asked two other colleagues if they wanted to join him in sailing to Australia, where he had a job waiting for him. And uh, they were—they both said yes. And, and he asked me, and I said yes. And then he decided that uh, probably the optimum crew for a boat of that size would be 3 so I suggested that I join they were starting in England obviously where the boat was built and one of the other two friends colleagues was doing postgraduate work in in, uh, in Italy so I said why doesn't he do the Atlantic crossing and I'll do the Pacific so
0: But we, before we jump into that that story okay. about you crossing the Pacific let's go back to to how you your, your very first sailing, how did you actually get introduced to sailing? Do you remember the first time?
1: Well, I grew up in the, in the 40s in Chicago. I lived only about five or six blocks from Lake Michigan, but because of the polio scare, we could never go to the beach, and so I never really learned to swim. My sister went to a girls' camp in Wisconsin, and I remember the first time I went sailing was, it wasn't a sunfish, what was the predecessor of the sunfish, uh, but anyway, I, I was scared to death because I knew I couldn't swim but that was my first sailing experience at your
0: sister's camp
1: at my sister it was post camp for families uh-huh. uh, and uh, then I guess I never sailed when I when I uh, graduated from uh, the University of Rochester and uh, on a Navy scholarship I had a commitment to serve Four years in the Navy, and uh, I was assigned to work for Admiral Rickover in Washington. I lived in a house, and one of the uh, chaps who lived in the house had a lightning, which he kept at the sailing marina just south of the airport in Washington, and so I sailed with him.
0: On the Potomac River on there. the
1: Potomac River, and I had a colleague... Uh, in the office in the Navy who had gone to Cornell and had a 25-foot sailboat on Lake Cayuga, somehow he got it to Sandy Hook in New Jersey and asked several of us if we would help him sail the boat from Sandy Hook down to the Chesapeake Bay in, in Legs. And uh, so that was, my I guess, my first offshore experience. What prompted you to do that? It's significantly different than sailing
0: in a, in I a small know, it just,
1: boat. It appealed to me. But it was only a 25-foot boat. It was, you know, as you know, the uh, the trip down the East Coast and up the Delaware Bay is filled with bugs and everything else. It was, it wasn't a, a really great trip. But still, it wetted my interest.
0: Mom, what's your first memory of sailing?
2: Well, I, sp- I spent every summer of my life in the Adirondacks on a lake. We did not have sailboats. We had lots of boats. So water and boats were all something that was very comfortable for me, I had sailed with a boyfriend whose parents had rented a house off the New Jersey, on the New Jersey coast on a sunfish once. And once on about a 25 foot boat, somebody's graduation party on Long Island Sound, that was it, absolutely it. In terms of my, it was not part of my world or part of my, even my, well, it was part of my imagination because there was a television program called Adventures in Paradise where the uh, skipper, I think it was Troy Donahue, I'm not sure, skippered a schooner in the South Pacific. It was a cargo schooner, and he would go from island to island, and it would solve a mystery every week, and I loved that show. So that was my knowledge of sailing
0: when do you feel that you each learned to sail because you'd been on boats was there a time when you said oh this is something
1: i want to learn more about are you asking about competency or learning i think learning is a lifelong adventure and uh learn by doing really
0: when did you say to yourself this is something that i want to get better at and do more of
1: when I got out of the Navy, I moved to San Francisco and I started racing on a pre-war class called the PIC. And that had great appeal for me. But it really wasn't until I jumped in with both feet and started sailing. I joined, joined Rad on, on the trimaran in uh, Antigua and loved the lifestyle.
0: What are your memories from sailing in San Francisco, racing in San Francisco?
1: There was exciting and cold, and the only time you ever took your foul weather jacket off was in a downwind spinnaker run. <laughs> and that was very different than sailing on lakes and rivers. Yeah, and what boats were you sailing on? They were called PICs. They were, they were like a small dragon, wooden construction pre-war. And
0: how about you, Mom?
2: Your father introduced me to sailing, and I think for both of us, it was the lifestyle. You said it perfectly in the introduction. It was the way, uh, a different way of, of meeting people and seeing the world, as well as testing and challenging yourself. When Dad came back from his South Pacific sojourn, which was about two and a half years. Two years. I met him about six months after he returned. We were married 15 months later. He had his first real job, up the ladder career job, right? Right. At a wonderful ocean engineering company, but by the time we were married, the company was, something had changed. It had become too corporate, and all the really interesting oceanographers and geologists and geographers or what, engineers, were leaving. So I said to Sid, well, if you have to look for another job anyway, why don't we look for a boat and go sailing before we have children, because one of His appeals, the appeal of him introduced to me by his sister-in-law as a cautious adventurer and I really was intrigued by this cruising lifestyle. So we decided, we were married in May and in New Year's Eve, December 1969, we toasted with beer that we were going to buy a boat and go cruising. And he bought me a 10-foot sailing dinghy. I could never find what it was, what class it was. It was called a Telstar. Telstar, yeah. We were living
1: in, in Palm Beach at the so time. So he would
2: take me out. Luckily, he couldn't um, get in the boat with me. It was too small. So he'd stand on the shore and yell at me. And I learned basics, the very basics of sailing. But my real learning to sail was really not until we took off. On our first offshore, well, as you know,
1: Ben, there's there's sailing and there's all the techniques and concerns that are involved in that. But there's also a lifestyle, and that's what really appealed to us both, I think. And it was a way to travel, but even more important, it was the people you meet and the sense of satisfaction that comes from accomplishing a voyage. And at the time, we were doing celestial navigation when we first set out. And so the the sense of accomplishment of actually fetching up on an island where you think you're supposed to is exciting.
0: Buying a small boat and setting off across the ocean is still intimidating to a, a lot of people, though there are a lot more people doing it now. What were the reactions that you got from people? Did you start telling people immediately? What did you
1: family members my philosophy is don't announce what you're going to do do it and then take pride in having done it
2: um well Sid's parents gave us I believe five thousand dollars to buy furniture they were so happy he was settling down and he had a job he was 32 and we asked them would they mind if we used that money towards buying a boat and it paid for a good part of the boat since we paid eleven thousand dollars in nineteen seventy, July nineteen seventy for our home built ferro cement catch. It was a modified Tahiti catch designed by
0: Al Mason. Al Mason. Obviously they didn't forbid you from using the money, but what was the reaction when you
2: Well Sid so had been them? pretty independent from them. So I and they were proud of what he had done. I think that thing with them is they didn't know what the risks were. (laughs) It was so far from their world. I'm looking back, you know, we had no ham radio, we had no communications. We were 16 days at sea from Southport, North Carolina, to the Virgin Islands. And even when we got to the Virgin Islands, I don't think we called our parents for another week when we finally got to St. Thomas, because we fetched up on the very eastern side of the Virgins and Virgin Corda, we wrote letters. They didn't expect to hear from us. Now, as a parent, when you were off cruising, I would run home every day at 3 and listen to the ham radio to hear you talking to her, getting weather as you were offshore, but you didn't know that.
0: Well, let's jump back because you made a decision. You toasted. We're going to go off cruising. What were the steps that you had to take? Well,
1: at the time we we were celebrating for New Year's Eve, as I said, we were li- living in, in Palm Beach. I was running a small office that, that the company, uh, which was headquartered in the uh, Washington suburbs, had down there. <clears throat> we After about six months there, we moved back to Washington. But we did spend time in Palm Beach looking For boats. Down to to, Miami. And and down to, yeah. Fort Lauderdale. decide what a good cruising boat would be and what was in our price range, which was very limiting. So we moved back to Washington and shopped the uh, Chesapeake Bay area for boats and looked at, at quite a few boats. As I said, fiberglass was very new at the time and very expensive. So really, we were looking at wood, which is a maintenance headache. The, no, the, no, we
2: fell in love
1: oh, well, with we a fell.
2: 50-foot wooden catch, which had hmm. been sailed to the South Pacific. Built in
1: 1900.
2: It, it was very hard to find any boats that were really cruising boats. Cruising boats in the sense of the hiscocks. And we were looking for, a, his trimaran had been 35 feet, so he thought 35 feet was good. That range was a good range. We almost bought the wooden catch. We couldn't afford it by ourselves with a- That
0: was Finistere?
2: That was the other- That
0: was Gwendolyn.
2: That was Gwendolyn. There was another office mate of his who had left the company, and he was interested, and we almost bought it with him, and the whole thing fell through, which was very, very good. We would have never gone cruising, would have spent the next two, three years working on the boat. Finistere was a close second. But it also needed work and it was it was a racing boat and it was, but it was you know, a typical it was a wooden cruiser, boat very narrow, narrow and
1: mm-hmm. very limited volume it, inside. I
2: think we were getting a little depressed when two boats came into Annapolis. One an arpage thirty, which was fiberglass
1: built by Dufour.
2: And the New Zealand catch Corora, which is the ferro cement catch which we bought.
0: How did you find Corora?
2: In that thing called the classified ads in the back of the newspapers, which nobody would know <laughs> back about back in the now. sports
1: section on Sundays. They're boats and motorcycles. And what do you recall about
0: seeing her purchasing her?
2: I think it was love at first sight. She was a, she was cluttered inside because they had three children on a 33-foot boat, and they'd been living on her. They'd sailed three-quarters of the way around the world. But she was a cruising boat. Somebody was actually living on her and had crossed oceans on her with children, so that seemed like that must be safe. She had a full keel. But then, after we got her, we spent 15 months working on her. We made her much spiffier.
1: What were the main things? biggest thing was changing the engine. It it had an early Anmar diesel, which was 4 horsepower and weighed 400 pounds, 200 pounds of which was in the flywheel. (laughs) It was hand-cranked to start. And so we felt she was a little underpowered, and uh, Volvo was closing out a 10 horsepower model at the time, which was two two cylinders and uh, as opposed to one and I got a, a deal on that it was from a, a dealer in Norfolk it was just under a thousand dollars, and I think the freight cost to bring it up to Annapolis from from uh, Norfolk was twenty two dollars. <laughs> Good memory. You just
0: surfed some pictures of you putting that in. I think it was summertime, and you were all dripping in sweat.
1: Well, we, we after we bought uh, Carrara, and Carora, by the way, is a little blue penguin from New Zealand, and we liked the name, and it's uh, superstition about changing names, so we kept the name. Anyway, we moved the boat to uh, the a, friend's du- house. a friend's house uh, off the Magothy River on the Chesapeake, and I proceeded to... Uh, pull the old engine out with a block and tackle from the mizzen boom and set it on deck. And then we rode the the dinghy pull, towing the boat to a marina at the mouth of the, the Magathy River or mouth of the stream to where it went in the megathy River. And the crane in the yard there picked up the old engine off the deck and put the new engine on the deck. And we turned around and <laughs> rode the, <laughs> the boat back to the dock. And it was a Oh, horribly hot day, and we we drank so much iced tea that we both went to bed that night on the boat, and we couldn't close our eyes. There was so much caffeine. Huh.
0: So the engine. What were the other main oh. things you did before you well, took the, off? Well,
1: the the uh, stove was mounted uh, over the over one of the uh, half over it. half over one of the berths. We moved that into the galley. Uh, there was a quarter. We got
2: a new kerosene stove. It was an alcohol. I yeah. Loved my kerosene yeah. yeah. There was here. a
1: there was a quarter berth on the port side, which we tore out and made into storage, and the the forward portion of it I turned into a chart table and seat with
2: which, drawers was, and yeah. stuff. Uh, oh, they had never had time um, to enclose the closet, the hanging locker opposite the head. It just had um, a curtain. So Dad made louvers doors for it i
1: don't think there was any water in the uh, in the head either we, it, we we had no pressurized water but we had a foot pump in the galley and i ins- installed a foot pump in the basin in the uh, sink in the head
2: i think we changed all the ca- oh, counters and we we replaced the cu- not the cushions but the coverings of the cushions
0: yeah. when did you feel that you were ready did you have a date or did you have Items that you wanted well, to check off?
1: As, as you know, on the East Coast, if you're going to the Caribbean, you, it pays to get going before winter sets in. So that was our deadline, and we were hoping to leave in October. We finally left, was it early December?
2: Well, we we left November. We bought the, bought the boat from, in
1: July of 70, and we took off in 71. late November, or early December. We, or, we uh, took
2: off from Judy's dock in mid-November.
1: Of 71.
0: Dad, you... Had the confidence of already crossing the Pacific on a end. Did it feel different being on your own boat? Well, being the, responsible. The, big, the
1: biggest difference was not between a multi-hull and a monohull. The biggest difference was being a crew member and being captain. Right.
0: That's what I'm asking. Yeah. Did it, did that feel significantly yeah, there was different? Yeah. There
1: was a lot more responsibility in in skippering the boat and just the two of us and with Rebecca having no experience offshore.
2: Yeah. It was it was a phenomenally wonderful focus and challenge for us and we were newly married but working on the boat together having that purpose we'd work all week at our jobs in Washington and race out to Annapolis and work every weekend and then the going down the waterway getting comfortable with the boat you know I remember saying oh Sydney's always so tense you know, I learned why after a while.
0: Did you think that's just who he was, or did well, it you... was
2: partly who he was, <laughs> but I learned that it's because he felt the responsibility.
0: Did you have any apprehension putting basically your life in the hands of your new husband, or were you completely confident that he knew what he was doing?
2: I think I was, I was dumb enough. It took her, to her a while to realize. <laughs> it took me a while to realize that, you know, he wasn't. Totally infallible. I trusted him. Um, I wasn't. No, I and I really wanted to do it. I was willing to take the risk for the for the opportunity to learn and challenge and and have that the experience of of this lifestyle.
0: I, I'd love to ask you about that first passage. Were there moments when you said, "Why the hell am I doing this?" I mean, you had. Sailed and you knew the highs of it and the lows of it.
1: Well, I think we were blissfully ignorant in many ways, and it, which was a big advantage. I mean there weren't all these gadgets that you had to have before you could go offshore. There wasn't weather routing, there wasn't weather forecasting, there was so it, you weren't always looking for a weather window. You went, you did it, and you in a slow boat like that, you accepted the weather that you got. Um, and you learn, learned along the way. Uh, I've always felt that boats are able to take a lot more than the crews, and so I had confidence that this was a solid boat, yeah. and uh, we dealt with it.
2: And that's what I had learned from Dad previously to going offshore. You're living in the present, and you deal with what's going on right now. You know, we did have some very uncomfortable weather, but I don't think I ever worried that the boat wasn't going to be able to take it.
1: I also think I benefited from the voyage I did to Australia, not in what I learned, but in the simplicity of the boat that we sailed. We had a 15-horse outboard. that was on deck. It wasn't even installed, and we had 10 gallons of gas. So, you know, Corora had a diesel engine and had cool. fuel, and uh, it, it, it was pretty pretty spartan nevertheless, but it, it had a depth sounder, uh, which we didn't have on the on the trimaran. It um, had no refrigeration.
2: It's funny when you say it was pretty spartan. She was my first home, and, and we didn't have hot water. We didn't have pressurized water. We didn't have refrigeration, and we didn't even have a cooler because your father said, you know, why have a cooler if you can't get ice, which makes sense. We didn't have room to store it. But she wasn't Spartan. She was cozy. She was comfortable.
0: Well, that's what you get used to. So that first passage, tell me about your experience.
1: First night out, <laughs> we, we ran aground.
2: Oh, Lord. Well, the <laughs> the day we let, were scheduled to leave Judy's, we got about 20 feet from the dock and Sid heard a horrible noise in the engine and he couldn't get the boat back to the dock so he jumped in the water in November and pulled the boat with a rope swimming back to the dock <laughs> and the next morning he checked everything out and couldn't find anything wrong so we did take off and we went just down to Annapolis but the next day we were on our way and we made it to Solomon's Island on the Patuxent. And I say it that way because that's where we kept the boat that we had when Ben was young. But this was our first time in and no GPS and, no, you know, it, 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 there were so many lights. We didn't know. And there was nothing around. And it was a dark night. We were looking
1: for a white navigational light and there were white lights uh, we everywhere. We went
2: right onto the the, the dredge yeah. spoil
1: there dredge in the spoil. middle of the harbor.
2: And Sid went around with a lead line and, you know. It was one
1: we, o'clock at night, <laughs> freezing and, cold.
2: Um finally, he took a dinghy out and took an, an, a, an anchor and catched us off. And we anchored in the seaplane, no anchor area, seaplane landing. We didn't figure there were going to be any seaplanes landing that night. So that was an ignominious start. And we had two people as crew who were not sailors. But anyway, we got going and we got down, we went down the intercoastal waterway.
1: Planning to... Sp- head offshore from Moorhead City, Beaufort, North Carolina. And uh, the couple of who joined us as crew, we hadn't realized that she didn't swim and was petrified of going offshore, so oh. they bolted at the last minute, leaving us without crew. Oh. So we continued on down the waterway one more leg to uh, Southport, North Carolina, while we called friends and looked for crew.
0: And you found somebody?
1: We found two people, actually. One was a South African doctor who had been in the Peace Corps so and was living was, living in Chicago. He was, was a, a f-
2: friend of Jack Mechanic's, our friend Jack Mechanic. and, um,
1: and The other chap was a, a young man who we had met in Warhead City who was careering on another boat.
2: And he was great. Uh, the first week was wonderful because Albert, the South African, was... Um, Constantly taking samples from the water and cooking up the little shrimp and very the interesting. The
1: weed and taking the little shrimp uh, and, and we critters. Were, it was other.
2: glorious. Um, it was quite and calm. Then, then the barometer dropped and the weather turned to shit. <laughs> and um, I don't, we didn't ha- ever have terribly strong winds, force five, force six maybe, force six, maybe seven, whatever. Um, but it was uncomfortable and Albert obviously was not comfortable and was afraid and he started really picking on Brian the other crew who was a really helpful person in terms of sailing and Brian was and Albert was always calling Sid you know oh you know he he never knew what to do so that was kind of difficult but i personally found it a challenge You know, the challenge for me was, can I make food for all of these people in this kind of weather? You know, the most, obviously, as on any boat, the most comfortable place is at the helm. And that's, the person who's at the helm has the most sense of confidence because they feel like they're able to be in control. But I think the crew, especially Albert, when they were down below and they were bouncing around and were not... Confident or comfortable.
0: Do you remember how you guys did watch?
2: Yeah. Because I did it was my home and I did all the cooking. I and wanted it that way, and I did the vast majority of the cleaning. Um, I stood the nine to twelve watch. At night. At night, which I loved. And they rotated. They did three hour watches and and in a so that everybody could have different times and during the day we were pretty casual
1: we did have a very rudimentary self-steering gear which is made out of a bicycle sprocket and a bolt and a a trim tab on the back of there it was a it was a double-ended boat with a stern hung rudder and so the trim tab was on the back of the the rudder
2: it worked though
1: it it, it did work (laughs) sort of
0: and so how long was that first passage down to the Virgin. i
1: thought 14 i no, think no. rebecca it says 16, 16 days.
2: days one
0: of the reasons we're having this conversation is because you guys just recently went back through all of your old logs and notes and photos and put together a, a book about this so your memories are a little fresher yeah. correct um,
2: <laughs> that's how i know how were there it any
0: was. any surprises any uh recollections that you'd forgotten in
1: Going back over that
0: material oh, about
1: vast, vast number that were rekindled. I mean, it's fifty certainly.
0: years. Fifty <laughs> years ago, yeah.
1: And well, the, the interesting thing was, I the, the day before we made landfall in the Virgin Islands, we had a, we did have a HF radio transmitter which preceded the VHF, so it had a little longer range. And I had a friend who I'd met in Tahiti on my way to to Peter Munch on my way to. Uh, to australia and we had lived together in australia and and uh, hung around together when i came back to the states and he was back on the east coast anyway he was in the process of of uh, operating a, a 70 75 foot catch as a charter boat in the virgin islands and so we reached him by radio the day before we got in and that was that was exciting and oh, that was later later exciting. in the afternoon <laughs> i uh I can't remember if it was a sun line or a moon line, but I was using both of them and, and advancing lines of position to get a fix. Uh, and I said to Rebecca, you know, we're heading straight for Anagata if my if my fix is correct. Anagata being the northernmost and low-lying, the only low-lying Virgin Island. Mm-hmm. And so I climbed the Ratlands up the mast. And sure enough, dead ahead of us was land, which we could easily have run into. It was probably two in the afternoon or something. We were fortunate. so. So the the navigation was good. We altered course.
2: Well, we hove to for the night. Well, but then showers. we
1: got got close within you know a few miles of the of the, the Virgin Gorda, and we just hove to for the evening. And it was Beautiful a delightful evening. night. And then with daylight in the morning, we went in through the pass. Uh, into
2: Gorda Sound. Into Gorda Sound. And Pete and, and his wife Kenny had charterers aboard, so they'd had. They arrived fabulous, shortly thereafter. Um, meal, and Pete just came over with our mail, and cold milk, cold beer, leftover,
1: leftover New Year's uh, Christmas Eve roast duck.
2: duck. It was quite <laughs> a, a welcome.
0: That sounds lovely. What were the feelings of having accomplished
1: that first? Fantastic, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, we were. We were
1: on a high, really of up. course. The, the high was mitigated somewhat by Albert. Now, this was Christmas Day. Albert insisted he wanted it off the boat. Well, there, you know, there's nothing going on in the Virgin we Islands. We in. We, we, had... we were on an island off of Virgin Gorda, um, and I ended up borrowing a dinghy that had a seagull engine to take him ashore on Virgin Gorda proper, where there were these people living. Uh, And we got about a third of the way to where we're to the landing where we were going, and the engine quit. And I said, "Albert, you want to go ashore? (laughs) You row." (laughs) And he did.
0: (laughs) As you said, that was fifty years ago, and you guys have been cruising together on different boats ever since. Mm -hmm. What you sailed on Corora for?
1: I had taken a six-month leave of absence. Okay, and I said to the company that I was working for, I said you know, will you pay my medical insurance, which was probably $30, $40 a month in those days, and hold my job for me? And and I wanted to take a six-month sabbatical and cruise to the Caribbean, and they said, certainly. And so as we, in, in June, we were working our way back along the, north of along the East Coast to home, and we were not at all ready to give up the cruising lifestyle
0: after how how far south had you gone in Grenada Grenada Grenada. Grenada was as
2: far south as we went okay and in Grenada we met that's when our a real cruising experience began because we met Sandefjord South African
1: she was a converted Um, Sid uh, had met them lifeboat right yeah it was it was a Colin archer design Norwegian lifeboat
2: Sid had met them in Sydney and I'd heard all about them and they had made a movie about their trip around the world. And now it was one of the owners and his wife and his two children who had sailed from South Africa to Rio, I guess. Yeah, the they boys
1: had, the boys were just your girls' age at those or four and, and six.
2: We met them and we cruised with them for the rest of the time, including up to No Connecticut. Um, and through them and with them we had the real cruising experience, meeting all kinds of interesting people and just going where we wanted, when we wanted. Because initially, when we got to the Virgins, w- we had made a big mistake. We had invited everybody we knew to join us.
0: Yeah, you were mentioning that the other day, that yeah, you were invited we friends and family. Yeah, we ran a non
2: charter machine mm-hmm. with 24-hour turnarounds. Um, it was very nice to see everybody, but it wasn't cruising. That was one of a big thing we learned in terms of of going cruising. And the other thing was, we, His Dad said, he doesn't believe you should make grand pronouncements and I'm going to do this, do this. You can decide in your own head what you're going to do. But you take it step by step. So also, he didn't know how I was going to do and if I really was, if I was going to freak out at sea or whatever. So when we got to the Virgin Islands, everything had been... The focus and the purpose had been getting the boat in shape, and ourselves knowledgeable enough to make that passage. Yeah, and make the passage. And we got there, and there was this wonderful elation, and then there was a letdown.
1: A deflation. Yeah. Mm.
2: What? Okay. What now? But Mm. what happened was, what now was? Oh, Sid's sisters coming. Oh, my parents are coming. Oh, Sid's brothers coming. We couldn't go where we wanted to when When we we
1: wanted to. Yeah, and it took us years to learn. That other oh, wow. axiom of cruising is if people are meeting you, you say, we can tell you a place or a time, but not both, to mm-hmm. meet.
2: That is really, really important.
0: You were telling me just last night you had some friends meeting you and you, you were trying to lay an island to windward and <laughs> yeah. were unable to and had to let them know. Yeah, and we
2: had no way of communicating with them. So we needed to get somewhere, since we weren't going to get to Martinique where they thought, or St. Martin's, I can't remember, where they thought they were going to meet us. We needed to get somewhere by the day that they would be leaving Boston so that we could let them know that we weren't there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It all worked out fine.
0: (laughs) Now, part of it was getting comfortable with the boat. And you guys have a story of getting comfortable with yourselves on the boat about you
1: finally felt comfortable
0: to leave the boat anchored for a night.
1: Oh. Well, yes, th- this was when we had a break in visitors. And so we had I, you know, I don't know 4 days off or something. And it coincided with our again our friend Peter Munch's charter schedule. He had a week off, and so he said to us, "Well, uh would you like to come aboard Athena, which was this magnificent 75-foot boat and sail down from St. Thomas to St. Croix, which is about 70 miles so we anchored uh carora in in saint thomas harbor probably 30 35 feet of water hopped aboard athena and had a glorious sail because we're you know it was a reach all the way down relaxed because you're not having to relaxed sail. we had kenny munch his wife was a great cook and we had a lovely dinner and we drank and until talked until about one o'clock in the morning and rebecca was saying to pete well you know Sid's awfully tense. Says, this is the one thing I didn't expect on this trip. And Pete says, "Well, I'm always tense too with the responsibility of the skipper." He said, "But you know, act nonchalant with a drink in one hand and a cigarette in another." Anyway, we went went to sleep and slept like babies because the noises that I was hearing didn't bother me. Uh, didn't have to worry about anything. And in, in the morning, there's a, a banging in the hall saying, "Sid, Rebecca, get your ass back to St. Thomas. Your boat's sinking."
2: I'll never forget it because we, they bumped two people off of the tiny little seaplane.
1: Which we went to by dinghy. We didn't even go ashore. And let we. us
2: go on it. And we just sat there and said, All we care about is that she's still floating. That she's still floating. You know, we'll deal with it. But it was like, this is, we hadn't even started yet. Mm-hmm. And as we came around from the airport and we looked into the harbor in Charlotte, Amali, um she was floating. And she was floating because at that time, most of the boats in the harbor were crewed charter boats, small. Some of them were 75 feet like,
1: like Most of uh, them But most of range. them were in
2: the 40s. And we had met most of these people because there weren't even that many cruising boats. And they had noticed the boat was sinking, and they had turned to and had Broken saved in. her. Yeah.
1: So what had happened? Well... There was only one through hull to to bring seawater in for the toilet and for the saltwater pump in the galley and for the engine cooling. Uh, And there was a T-fitting where it branched off to these various places that was homemade by Michael Watson, who built the boat. And it was a soldered fitting, and it chose that time to let go. And so there was a crew on an adjacent boat anchored in the harbor, and he thought we were a little low on our lines at sunset the night before by morning it was clear that we were very low on our lines and so one of the charter skippers swam around under the boat to find the through hole location while the other one broke the lock on the companionway went in and the uh, one in the water guided him to where it was and he just shut the shut the seacock and then they proceeded to take a five-gallon pail and stand in the cabin heaving five gallons at a time of water into the cockpit where it drained through the cockpit drains. And by the time we got back, she was pretty much floating on our lines. The water had come up over the engine, just about to the level of the pilot berths. So everything above that was okay.
2: Books, clothes. Yeah, Yeah.
1: but all all, all the spare parts and tools were underwater. The mattresses on the...
2: yeah, uh, all the mattresses. I don't know
1: about the four peak, but certainly in the in the in the pilot bursts or the you know Kevin's
2: all the food we're, that was in cans. Uh, yeah, the labels
1: come off all the cans, <laughs> so it was a guessing game for eating.
2: Well, I think I had um, labeled, uh-huh. you know, with markers the tops of most of the cans, having read about what you should do. Um, but we were in shock. And,
0: yeah, I um, bet.
2: And they there was one particular skipper, a guy named Fergie, whom we had. I don't know if we've met him or not, but he just took control and he took, you know, situation. took me in hand
1: and, you know, we, we flushed out the engine with, with fresh water. The battery, the battery posts were about the size of a, of a nail. The, 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 the short circuit when, when the uh, salt water came across it, they just.
0: Discharged.
1: Discharged. And so the battery was shot, but we managed to turn the engine over and, and, you know, within half a day or something, we had the engine running and that was a. That great was a big relief. relief.
0: Yeah.
2: Within a, um 3 4 weeks we were up and running again. We uh, you know, I, I remember we did the insurance did pay and it was about $1000 <laughs> which nowadays seems ridiculous. Um because mostly it was for the new cushions.
0: Yeah. And you were somewhere relatively Oh right, we moved the um, boat
1: into a slip at the marina in
2: Yacht Haven in uh, Yacht Haven Marina in St.
1: Thomas and, and we worked on it there. Yeah. yeah. You could get supplies. But um yeah.
2: But we never left the boat again at anchor. Overnight. Overnight. I mean, never. <laughs> it was it was an experience, but it was also a very positive experience in many ways because the people were so helpful and wonderful mm-hmm. and we were very fortunate.
0: So you completed that trip. Did you know that that was something that you would want to do again?
2: You know, your father had introduced me to sailing, to cruising by saying that cruising was a virus that gets into your system and may lay dormant, but it will surface at some time. And I think by that, you may have not, Sid, you may not have thought you would go cruising again. Not so
1: soon, certainly.
2: Hmm? Um, But once we had done it together, we both knew that it was something, it was, we really enjoyed working together, as much as we bickered and...
0: Yeah, talk about that a little bit, about your, I mean, you said you were newly married, this was a, a, a new relationship. What did it, how did it change your relationship that, that year, year and a half of sailing together?
2: I think it gave us a focus and a purpose, working together, and we learned how to work together. It was challenging.
1: We were very much on our own because certainly at sea on a passage, but, you know, even in harbor, it was the two of us yeah.
2: as a team. In uh, fact, we've said that with COVID, of course, we've been extremely fortunate. We're retired. We don't have the financial worries that other people have. We don't have the children to have to worry about. Being at home, not being able to do, go out and see that many people and all that stuff was very much like being on the boat. And I used to say, you know, when you're on the boat, he's in the chart table, I'm in the galley, or I'm up on deck reading, or I'm, you know, those are very discreet parts of a boat, even if it's only 33 feet or 35 feet long.
1: And we figured if we survived in those close quarters for a year and a half, that the marriage probably would last. So when you
0: swallowed the anchor and we're back on shore and not long after having children me and my brother 3 years later how did that
2: manifest it's funny because we kept talking about when would it be the time to get a boat it's not the time to get a boat till finally when you were john was about 6 we were really feeling like What happened with Corora was she was not a boat for the Chesapeake Bay. She was much too heavy. But obviously, both of us kind of wanted it. And we had just decided, no, it was too soon. You were, John was six, and you were, what, nine.
1: Yeah, we when concluded. Reason, we talk- your
2: father looked in the classified ads.
1: And there was small advertisement from somebody who was looking for a partner to share a boat. And I could tell from the telephone exchange Back in the days when they meant something, that he was in the Arlington Falls Church area. So I gave him a call. And he had spent the prior year with another potential partner looking for a boat, and they never could agree on one. He and I went out, and the first boat we saw was a lovely little Dufour 29 that was a couple years old. And we looked at several others, but it, in short order, we ended up buying that. He had two children about our children's ages, and we divvied up the calendar.
2: Yeah, um, so that was our rationalization. Well, we really shouldn't have a boat all on our own, but if we have a boat with somebody else, we can divide up the calendar and we can say to you boys, you can go to birthday parties and soccer games on these weekends, but these other weekends we're going to be sailing.
1: What were your memories of the boat?
0: Oh, boy, I remember just weekends on the Chesapeake. I mean, gunk-holing and swimming and getting stung by jellyfish and just... Enjoying. I have vivid memories of doing night sails and looking at the moon. No cell phone, I, so the
1: phone didn't ring.
0: Yeah, and uh, just being out there and enjoying it, and learning about sailing, and hearing your stories. And I remember begging you to take my brother and me out of school and take us cruising. Oh
2: yes, I've always said that you you know you've never forgiven us for not taking you cruising, which is something we had hoped we would do, even before. I met dad, it was something in my mind that if, you know, I would like to have my children and myself live in a different country and see the world from a different perspective. It didn't work out. Your father ended up partnering a business, and you don't just walk away from that. So until he could do that, which was unfortunately after you were grown.
0: (laughs) Well, it turned out all right. I did my own sailing. But after we were grown, once you got my brother... And me off to college. You guys, the virus
1: flared up again. Was that always the plan? No, no. No, We were open-minded about it all, but as it turned out, I sold my interest in the business. I was consulting with a friend. We at Freedom. Mom reached her ten-year
2: time at Planned uh, Parenthood. Retired. Um, (laughs) Well, I was. Things were changing there, and I would. I was at a stage where I would either really look to start being a consultant doing national or international um, family planning issues at a totally different phase and stage of my career or say, screw it, let's go sailing. (laughs) My line is that I solve the problem of being empty nesters. People are so distraught when their last child goes off to college by going to parents weekend to visit Jonathan and taking off sailing shortly thereafter well
1: to to backtrack a little we at the boat show in 1990 i guess we looked at a hallberg rassy brand brand new model that they had come out of 30 Mm -hmm. 37 or 36 36 36, and we loved it but obviously it was a quarter million dollars well out of our ballpark Uh, but in talking to the broker who was representing the boat he said i have one a used boat that's been following the boat shows as they progressed down the coast and it's across the Creek. Would you like to take a look at it? And we went over and that was Dafka and we fell in love with it and we went and that
2: was Thursday and Friday. Well we, well,
1: we, we, then we went out to dinner with our good friends and Bob said, well, if you don't buy it, I will. <laughs> so
2: Dad took you guys.
1: So I took you out of school Friday. and uh-huh. got your stamp of approval. And we made an offer on it. Then we had to decide, having bought the boat and all, did we still really like and were we up to the cruising lifestyle? So Yeah, talk about that a bit. What
0: were your doubts and fears? It had been 20 years since you had...
1: We we came back in 72. it
2: had been 20 years since we had been cruising, but we sailed on our boats in the Chesapeake and we sailed the Arpege sea fire mm. up to philadelphia and chartered. All the way up to, and we chartered down in the caribbean and dad had taken jonathan and sailed with our friend phil from morea to tonga
1: yeah and then John, you had joined was, phil and you had mm-hmm.
2: joined phil so you know it was still part of our lives and said it's and we said it sold his interest in the business was consulting but he wasn't feeling like he I
1: wasn't tied down or committed tied you
2: know. down in I ninety-two, was, we
1: sailed to Bermuda as a in shakedown. In ninety, we
2: said, "Well, let's let's start looking for a boat." Well, we expected it would take us for you know a good long time to find the right boat. Well, that boat show was probably was just to go to sea to begin the search, and the slip next to us in the marina where we kept seafire was a harbor grassy. It was the, that was our introduction and our only knowledge of an yeah, HR yeah. thirty-three-five-two but we knew it was a really lovely boat, so we saw it, and we bought it. So then, as Dad said, in 92, we said, well, you know, we really need to see if we want... I think it was 94. So we took the boat up to Boston, so that was the first big trip. And then in 94, we said, we need to do an offshore passage to, to see how we feel about it, and we went to Bermuda. And... I'll never forget it because I had to fly home from Bermuda to go back to work. And dad said to me, how are you enjoying your vacation? And I looked at (laughs) him and I said, what what are you talking about? Sailing, cruising is not a vacation. You know, it's a lifestyle. So I knew that I did want to do it again.
0: When did you decide, okay, we're
1: going to take off and do this?
2: When Johnny went to college. So
1: John started college in September and we took off in November for the Caribbean we got a, an 800 number where you could call us and you could call John and we, we abandoned our children and you took the dog to college
2: yeah you took the dog to college that's right but you did come to the Virgin Islands for Christmas. Christmas
1: yeah came met you
0: in Venezuela yeah. that was fabulous yeah. came met you in Turkey came met you in Israel it wasn't, wasn't too bad for me
2: met us in Croatia John Medicine Italy.
0: Other than the technical, bigger boat, GPS,
2: what were the main changes? For us. For you. With Dufka? Yeah. Well, we had pressurized hot water.
1: Refrigeration.
2: Had, we had refrigeration. Radar? No, we didn't have radar. No,
0: but beyond yet. the gadgets, beyond the the, oven. the luxury, was,
1: what was clearly the clearly there were more boats. There was GPS, which you know changed the whole cruising world. Uh, so it, it was more crowded. And so we did, we, we went down the first year to the Caribbean, came back for your graduation from college, went back the following fall, and then we said, you know, we've done the Caribbean. The food's not all that good. You know, yeah. The yeah. snorkeling is wonderful, uh, the sailing is, is good, but let's have a little more interesting adventure. And that's when we decided that we'd cross the Atlantic. So we we were down the season of ninety five ninety six, that winter, and then uh, ninety six ninety seven, and uh, we
2: went to it, Nova Scotia. Ninety eight
1: we went to
0: Nova Scotia. So that was a big right. change for you guys, though. That was a bigger leap that you had Worked than you had made before. Yeah. Yeah. Was there uh, added confidence? Was there? And what had changed between the two of you in terms of working together?
2: I didn't believe he was infallible anymore (laughs) (laughs) i also believe that i my opinion mattered and and our decisions you know i truly believe that there has to be one captain one skipper on the boat and i'm very comfortable letting your father be that person but most of our decisions are made jointly yeah
1: and you do you know a lot of the route planning i do the
2: route planning and, and we jointly look at the weather. Navigation before, I, I kind of knew how to do celestial, but I don't think I would have trusted my celestial navigation skills. I would do it as kind of a fun thing.
1: We had a more comfortable, more robust boat. I'm thinking about heading off cruising
0: with children. You guys did it before you had children, before and, and after. then after you'd gotten rid of children. And it would have been a very different experience. (laughs) Get rid of children. (laughs) After you you got them out of the house, (laughs) Um, I've got a four and a six-year-old. I'm looking to get rid of them. (laughs) No, only some of the time. (laughs) I'm curious how you think that is different. You sailed with people with children, and then um, curious the differences again between when you were cruising as a young couple and.
2: Well, I mentioned Santa Fiord and the two children on Santa Fiord, Sean and Peter, who were seven and nine when we met them, and we didn't have children, but we always knew we wanted children, and we both loved children. And in going back through our logs, recently, there's a lot. I mean, one of them or the other would be sleeping on our boat, spending the night.
1: Well, Um, and Pete and Kenny had a five-year-old daughter when we yeah we kept took care of her a couple times when they
2: went off chartering. and we were always very impressed with the children we met cruising. They, they knew how to deal with adults. They were, well, the, Sean and Peter needed, were needed on the boat. They couldn't sail that boat without those boys. So I think it's a wonderful thing and I think it's a wonderful life for children and a wonderful experience to develop confidence, competence, and see other ways to live. I mean, uh, especially now with all the electronic stuff. Not on boats, I mean in our society. Getting away from, being screens. able to get away from
0: it. You guys have sold Dovka to Lauren and me. We brought her out to the West Coast. And I'm very grateful for that. We're excited to hopefully sail her many for many more years. But when you look back, you're you're not done adventuring. I shouldn't say that you're you're done Thank because you. you're, <laughs> you're still headed off.
2: Other oh. people's boats, OPBs.
0: OPBs.
1: Talk a little bit well, about that. Well, one thing here. I might add, Ben, is uh-huh. that the anchorages have all gotten a lot more crowded. There are a lot more people out there cruising, uh-huh. and that's what's driving the more adventurous people the cruisers to high latitudes i think always mm-hmm. looking for more adventure but but the cruising lifestyle remains the same you know when when we started out cruising boats were an anomaly and people would you know welcome you to their home and stuff now it's more of an industry Upon which the people in the islands and whatever, particularly in the Caribbean, less so in, in Europe, but it, the, they're they're an industry. Not I don't want, like the word to be preyed upon, but it's a source of income for the cruisers are. But still, it's the people you meet and the relationships you make, and uh, email and you know, the electronic communications have made it so much easier to keep it in touch with these people. But. You know, I've got friendships that are 50, 60 years old of of cruising folks, and they just keep popping up in the strangest places, and and that is part of the real beauty and love of the whole way of life.
0: Do you think it's the kind of people you meet? What is it in addition to just—because you can make friends in any community in which you're in on land.
1: Well, part of it is you're overlapping maybe only for a day or two. So you cut through— the some of the song and dance that you do when you would meet somebody at a cocktail party or whatever and, yeah. and obviously you don't make lifelong friends of everybody you encounter mm-hmm. there's lots of duds out there and there are only a few but gems there's al- But there's
2: also that it's not what's important is not how much money you have not how what you did in life what your career was it's whether you can fix your engine <laughs> I mean whether, you know, what, what their basic abilities and competence yeah, are. Yeah, and, and that's who's, how you relate who's to there people. for
1: you when you need them to help you and, out or whatever. Um,
2: but also, in terms of cruising, it's not just the cruisers. Even now, you can meet and get to know locals if you would, you know, go beyond the volleyball games in, organized by the, Cruisers.
1: Yeah, last year we went back to Venice and looked up a Venetian who worked as a croupier at the casino. Wonder, wonderful guy. He was a light plane pilot, did all sorts of things. But we were anchored in an unused canal in Venice in the early 2000s.
2: And he and some
1: of his friends came out actually to look at a different boat. But while they were punting around, they came over and we chatted and we became friends. And then two years later, we were back, and we... And he arranged for us
2: to dock in his little Lega Navale club. Uh, boat club. We were the biggest boat in the club. Um, but, but that enabled us to leave the boat and visit some friends in Tuscany. and enabled us to take the bus and go into Venice. And last year, um, we
1: went back with the Gannons, our friends and neighbors. And I think it was the high point of their visit to Venice when we had lunch.
2: With Victoria, and he drove us around the Lido. You know, so
0: yeah. Well, I always finish up interviews by saying, "What haven't we talked about that you want to mention?"
2: For me, it's been it's been an integral part of our marriage, of our life. As I said earlier, a purpose, a joint focus and purpose for the two of us together. And I see a lot of our friends who are. now retired, who had, have good marriages, have had lovely lives, good careers, each of them, but they're each retired from their careers, their children are grown, and they don't necessarily have a lot of things that they share. And this is the thread that we yeah. share. Well,
1: there's the old oh, adage that people in their waning days don't wish they had spent more time in the office. We happily continue cruising it's it's been a wonderful part of our life
0: thank you so much i really loved hearing these stories yet again and hope other people enjoy them so thank you you're welcome i hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation with my parents as much as i enjoyed recording it From about 2001 to 2010, they kept a blog detailing their sailing across the Atlantic and in the Mediterranean. So if you're interested, you can check that out at dovka.com. That's D-O-V-K-A dot com. You can find me on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing or reach out to me directly at OutTheGateSailing at gmail.com. If you have any questions for my parents... I can pass them right along. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.